On today's show, co-founder of Melissa and Doug Toys, Melissa Bernstein. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm thinking in my head, I cannot show this to anyone and must do whatever I can to hide it from the world. So, you know, I basically took two paths. I'd say the first was to deny, disassociate, and repress every single thing I was feeling and put on a facade of perfection and validation through achieving perfection. And then the second was to retreat into my imagination whenever I could and create a fictitious world with imaginary friends and like this beautiful, blissful place where anything was possible in the boundless expanse of imagination. A real story of courage and creativity. From Oi Story to Toy Story. Please forgive me. It all happens now. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick. My partner, Jennifer Kalari, will be along shortly. And this is the show where we talk about and practice mental health skills. Mental health is not only a topic, it's a practice. So we have comedians, entertainers, artists, and a licensed pro. My partner, the first lady of serotonin, Jennifer Kalari who teaches resilient skills, brain hacks, all kinds of things you can do in any moment to change how we relate to our thoughts and feelings. We practice everything in life. Could we practice mental health? And when I say we, I mean me. I blame myself. I'm watching CBS Sunday Morning with my daughter, and I'm watching and I see this story come up about somebody whose products I've bought for many, many years, as many of you have, And I'm thinking of the sticker books in particular, the sticker pads, all of these Melissa and Doug toys that helped all of us get through childhood with our kids. If you've been a parent in the last 30 years, you've you've had the products. Well, somebody had to create those products. And you're thinking the person who created this product and this multi-billion dollar company probably is a pretty happy person, probably pretty well, probably doing, you know, everything. They've got to be living an amazing life. Well, you come to find out when you watch CBS Sunday Morning that that person is actually going through a lot of pain, a lot of challenge, a lot of suffering, a private hell, depression, anxiety, and all kinds of other things. I was just blown away by her openness and her candor. And she is here today. Melissa Bernstein is going to join us shortly, the co-founder of Melissa and Doug the best uh, toy company in the world. I want to talk today a little bit about a few issues. I want to talk about existential depression. What happens when you have a kid or you have a parent or you're somebody who actually suffers from existential depression, a, a deep, deep darkness that you don't know where it comes from, why it's there? What do you do about that? I also want to talk about isolation. It is Isolation Sweeps Week here on the show. It's always isolation. We try to bring people out of isolation and connect. How do we do that? How do we connect to our own thoughts and feelings and make choices about what we're going to do? How do you create pauses in your life? Pauses between what you think and what you feel and how you respond. Because a lot of mental health is creating a pause, right? So you can make a choice. You can take a breath. I will not be taking a breath because I'm the president of the Shallow Breathing Institute, which is here in California. Okay, and we're also going to talk about perfection. We always like to welcome people no matter what emotional uh, state they're in. And here are emotional shout outs. If you have an identity fraud case against yourself, welcome. 
If your pedometer allows the steps you take to avoid your feelings, welcome. If you cry uncontrollably during the moment of silence on CBS Sunday morning, welcome. If your response to wearing pants is shock and awe, welcome. If you've dropped your earbuds in the toilet more than three times, which I have, welcome. If you've ever used the phrase at the end of the day, at the end of the day, welcome. If you wish you could get into a rewards program for emotional distancing, welcome. If you've turned potato chip eating into a workout routine during COVID, welcome. And if you think Amazon should start offering therapy gift cards, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast with Ed Krasnick and Jennifer Kalari. I want to talk about a new sponsor product. It's called Overbooking.com. Overbooking is a new service designed to help people not overbook. If you're one of those people like me who overbooks, overpromises, and underdelivers, this is the app for you. Overbooking.com. And by 24-Hour Emotional Fitness Centers. Coaches and trainers, it's a Peloton for your personality. There are all kinds of uh, products and services that go on in our 24-hour emotional fitness center and by the new app, Make Roomy. This is a new app where people use the wisdom of Roomy to uh, create personal renovation in their own lives. That is uh, Roomy with a view. And by Therapy Squad, the new program that is all about a team of emotional superheroes, crime-fighting superheroes, who believe emotional crime uh, crime starts inside. And the superheroes of Therapy Squad help. With extraordinary superpowers, we have people like the Validator, Imaginera, Inspirator, Hell Yeser, Firacules, Roller, Roleplay Girl, and Mr. Sad. Okay, and also by the Be Here Now Pajama Pants, which I'll tell you about later. And by the new Mental Health Comedy Cookbook, uh, When You're Alive, Everything Else is Gravy. (laughs) All right, here we go. Okay, so I want to bring in our friend from the north and from the south, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, you just got back from a vacation in Sedona and the Grand Canyon. Yes. And you have no excuse but to feel great. (laughs) (laughs) It was lovely. It really was. Yeah. So, uh, and and, and I love, now you're from Canada, Mm -hmm. as most of our listeners know. And Canada, you know, not to generalize here, but not only are you people very polite, but you're very honest about where you are. And you also apologize more than I do, we which do. I love. A lot. <laughs> you're a therapist. Can, you have connected parenting.com where you help all kinds of families and kids. And you do it with media. You do it with books. You do it with skills. You do it with brain hacks. You do it with all kinds of, of education and yet, the first thing you said to me this morning was, I'm sorry for being late. <laughs> yeah. It's built in, built into those neural pathways. Yes. Yes. So I, so I love that. But let's talk about, let's talk about this for a second, because we're going to talk to Melissa in a minute. Sure. If, you, if you're a parent and you have a kid who has this real darkness inside mm-hmm. of them, this, this deep, dark, they just have it. It's mm-hmm. just inside of them. Existential depression. How do you deal with that? What do you do as a parent, and what do you do as a as, a, as an adult? Sure. Well, okay. So there, there's a, a number of answers to that. I mean, typically, kids and, and people in general who have that kind of really deep existential, big thinking kind of sadness, they they're usually very bright and overthinkers for sure. They're what I call horizon thinkers, and their brain kind of fractalizes. So if this happens, and that happens, and that happens, and that's going to happen. And then if that happens, for sure, that's going to happen. And they're overwhelmed by it. Um, and it can be a really 
exhausting, terrifying, heavy place to be. And when you're a parent and you see your child or your teen going through this, and and it's difficult because during the pandemic, I think this has gotten worse. And this type of depression is certainly uh, more common right now. And people have more time to sit and think in their own thoughts and worry. Parents just want to make it better and they just want to fix it. And they want to give their children all these reasons why they shouldn't feel that way, which just makes people who have this kind of depression feel worse. Because they're fully aware often of how uh, much they have and how privileged they are in many ways and feel even more terrible for being depressed when they have all this stuff. So it's really important to master this, I want to say it's a skill, but uh, of just being present with your child or your loved one. You don't have to say anything brilliant. You don't have to talk them out of it. You don't have to make them feel better. You need to be present. You need to sit with them. You need to be able to sit in that place and just be. And that's the hardest thing to do as a parent. And and I certainly have ways of coaching parents through that, but that's really it. The more you try to pull someone out of it and, and cheer them up and convince them not to feel that way, the worse they actually feel. So what's the skill that you can use to actually get yourself to do that? Because as a parent or just in my relationship with myself, if I have a thought or a feeling, I immediately want to react to it. Yeah. I want to fix it. I want no. to stop it. I want to do something of with course. it. Of course. And our whole culture, I mean, we're, we are just trained this way from the moment we open our eyes, right? If you feel bad, buy something, drink something, eat something, run away from it, escape. Negative emotions are indicators. They're, they're very important, right? They, they tell us when you're on the road and when you're off the road. And if you ignore them, just think of those feelings as information. When you ignore them, they chase you and they will get faster and louder, and they will eventually knock you over until you listen. And as crazy as this sounds, you have to be able to stop and turn towards it. It's almost like when you're feeling really deep and dark and sad, you almost want to go right into it, like right into that feeling and almost imagine that you're metabolizing it and and just face it. It is information. And the more you feel it and the more you let yourself feel it as dark and terrifying as that can be, the more it will dissolve, it will alchemize, it will eventually shift. Um, but the more you run either physically away from it by, by trying to do other things to keep yourself from thinking about it, or even when you're kind of in that dark place and you're just beating yourself up and you're just trying to run from it mentally, it will just grab you and pull you right back down. So it's, you have to be, listen, it's, it's very difficult. It's very heavy. It's very hard to watch your child or your loved one be in this heavy place and watch what your brain can do to you. But but sort of knowing that it is your brain, you are the thinker of your thoughts. Ed, we talk about this all the time, that just even just observing where you are in that moment of time and remembering that it will it will pass. But yeah, it's uh, th- that's really the best thing to do is to kind of be right there either with your loved one or with yourself. Well, it's amazing how things shift. You know, often the things that I would do to myself as a kid, especially growing up, is I thought that there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I just thought that there was something wrong with me. And no one ever told me that you will have thoughts and feelings, all kinds of thoughts and feelings, Mm -hmm. and they're not you. Yeah. Like no one ever mentioned that to me. That would be something good to let kids know in in childhood. No one ever mentioned that. No one ever mentioned you have a brain and the way it works is it tries to protect you when it thinks you're in danger. And then it goes overboard. 
Yeah. And then it goes overboard. And if you feed it, it you know, if you let it, if you acknowledge it, it, it actually dissipates. Yeah. No one ever said those things. These are real simple things. These are not complex. This is not complex thinking. The stuff that we do to ourselves and the way that we think about the meaning of thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. is so complex. The archaeology, we could all solve the Kennedy assassination immediately. <laughs> Everybody's got as a Bruder film going on and it's like it's in your head. And this is what, you know, and, and then what's going on to the outside world. And just this acceptance, just this acknowledgement of saying, oh, look, there's those feelings again. Oh, I see you. I acknowledge you. And I'm going to think about what feels good right in this moment because it's temporary. Mm -hmm. All of this is temporary. It's not permanent. You're not in danger and it's not permanent. You need that voice inside that says those things to you. Yeah. Is it mantras? Do we need um, personal mantras? How do you how do you do it when a family comes in? Listen, this is this is tough because when someone's in that really dark place, it is unbearable. I mean, it. I work with teens and children and young adults and, and adults who describe it. It's literally like you've just experienced a death in your family, and someone's saying, "Why don't you go for a walk? Why don't you make yourself a cup of tea? Do some deep breathing." Like there's nothing. It, it's that heavy. It's that dark. It's that devastating and it, it's crushing. It really is. And, you know, sometimes just, just having someone with you so that you're not alone, who's just holding your hand. Like I, I tell parents, you have to dare to be there, right? Just, just sit there. Sometimes don't even say anything or dart in and dart out. Just check on them every few minutes and just say, I'm sorry, your brain is doing this to you. I'm, I'm sorry. You're feeling this horrible. It's, you know, just sort of being present can really help. And, and when people get into that really dark state, for a lot of people, it's a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of fear and existential, what's going to happen and where do we go and where do we come from? And I have lots of kids where they just are consumed by that all the time. And then what can often happen is they start to turn on themselves. The brain turns on itself. You're an idiot. You're so stupid. You have no right to feel this way. There's people with real problems. Like it's, it's that attack on yourself that that so many people go through and it can take you to some really really dark places and what i think that is about is that negative emotions are there to protect us and to help us and to save us but when we go into that place of deep dark hatred for ourselves and self-loathing our best self our highest self the part of us that really does want to preserve our life and and loves us will not go there with us so there'll be this gap between what you know you should be feeling and what you are feeling. And it's that gap, actually, that's the darkest part. Part of it is that, I know it sounds crazy, but literally that metabolizing thing where you're just like, okay, I'm in this. It will not be forever. I'm going straight through it. I'm not going to try to run from it. I'm going to be present in this. And family members need to just know that that's something that person needs to do. It's well-meaning when you try to cheer them up and want to go for a walk and you need to exercise and, you know, change your diet and all of that stuff, which you can talk about at a different point, but not in that darkest, heaviest point where that person is really, really suffering. They just need you to be there. Yeah. Being there is, a, is an incredible, being present is an incredible healer. And, and, and also actually having a two-way, being knowing that when you're not in that state, you can have a two-way conversation with your emotions. You can actually, we think emotions talk to us, but we can't talk back. You can talk back, yeah. Hi, anxiety. Nice to see you this morning. Yep, there you are. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know you're with me. I can feel you. Sure. Uh, anything, you, anything you want to say is fine. 
I'm going to be here at my computer. You just hang, I'll just hang out. You can hang out with me. It's okay. You know, no one teaches us those kind of things. That's why I think role play is such a big thing in therapeutic yeah. role play specific. You can do it our way. You can do it my way. Or you can simply go on CBS Sunday morning and talk to millions of people and help help so many people, not only with your creativity, but with your courage. And that's our guest today. That's our fabulous guest. Um, she's the co-founder of one of the best companies in the world, uh, Melissa and Doug, the toys that uh, changed our lives and our kids' lives for so many years. But she was going through hell while she was doing all of these amazing things and had been since she was a kid. And we're going to talk about it this morning. Melissa Bernstein, good morning. Hello, Ed and Jennifer. Thank you for those kind Kind words about our company. We appreciate your support. Oh, my God. I How many sticker books did I go through? How many sticker pads? <laughs> like 10,000 sticker pads? I just kept getting and them. you know what? I know they're for you. It's okay. They are for me. <laughs> they, they, they're, they're, they're ripping off of a sticker. Those, those pads, like, saved my life. And I almost yes. want to have those pads for, for adults. That's what I want. I want the emotion. I want to do the stuff that you're... Your book, you wrote this incredible book, Lifeline, which we'll talk about. But I want to see a Lifeline's uh, toy uh, line. Mm -hmm. Do not fear. Uh, Yeah, I thought that might be coming. (laughs) Tell me about how a kid, you growing up as a kid, you're five years old and you're having these thoughts. What, What are you thinking in your head and what's going on in your family? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm thinking in my head, I cannot show this to anyone and must do whatever I can to hide it from the world. So, you know, I basically took two paths. I'd say the first was to deny, disassociate and repress every single thing I was feeling and put on a facade of perfection and validation through achieving perfection. And then the second was to retreat into my imagination whenever I could and create a fictitious world with imaginary friends and like this beautiful, blissful place where anything was possible in the boundless expanse of imagination. You actually wrote as as a little kid, you wrote what you call verses, which has found Mm -hmm. its way into your book, Lifeline. So that that force, that that life force that was in you uh, and in your imagination, you were using it at a very young age. Yeah, basically, you know, what I felt based on my emotions was utter chaos because I suffered with a meaning crisis that was so deep that I had a voice in my head telling me to just end my life because it was all futile and I would never make meaning in a meaningless world. So the verses were a bid to make sense of the senseless and order from the disorder. And I think when I wrote a very perfectly metered rhyming verse out of that utter chaos, it gave me a little sense of control and of peace in in making something concrete out of the non-concrete. When you get these attacks of voices and you're a teenager and you're a young adult, what happens? Are you aware of, of how it feels and, and, and what are you doing with it? Yeah, unfortunately, because I didn't allow the awareness of it to become conscious, 
I ended up engaging in behaviors to control the powerlessness I felt. And that became controlling every single thing I could, you know, starting with my performance, my looks, my behavior, and then unfortunately becoming more punishing in controlling my food, my exercise, my spending. I mean, anything basically that I could control and deny myself of pleasure, I did. Wow. Take us to meeting Doug and how that changed your your life and how you started the company. I, I engaged living this facade. Like I didn't know anything was wrong, to be honest. I so disassociated from myself and feeling anything other than great that that was who I was. And uh, when I met Doug, I weighed like 80-ish pounds. I was so weak, I could barely walk up a flight of stairs. And I really despise myself to such an extent because all the qualities that made me this creative person were also incredibly stigmatizing and made conventional society think I was weird. So I really hated myself for exactly who I was and denied myself any form of pleasure to really punish myself. I mean, I was basically killing myself. But when I met Doug, uh, you know, without saying anything, he looked at me and knew that something was very wrong and just began to make me eat. And uh, it was pretty subtle, but he started taking me to these nice restaurants and I was 19, but he was already out of college and had a job, a, a good job and would treat me to these lavish dinners and basically point at my plate and say, finish that. And because one of my other afflictions was pleasing, um, I, I, I debated what was worse, right? The demon in my head that was saying, you better not eat or having Doug, you know, be displeased when I said, sorry, I'm not going to eat that. And my need to please outweighed the demon in my head, thank goodness. And I began to eat. Um, and then as I ate, I sort of began to feel better. Um, and then just continued on with life. And I think Melissa and Doug was birthed out of, you know, we we finished college and both uh, engaged in very, very conventional careers. Because in those days, you didn't just up and say, yeah, guess what? I'm going to start a company. I mean, it would have been like looked, a looked upon like you had lost your mind. And instead of that, you you followed a career based generally on your major and were at that company your entire life and just moved up and very mindlessly went through the motions, whether it served your soul or not. Mm. <laughs> so we started in those traditional paths and we were both, you know, unhappy, but I felt like I had two gorillas. One was sitting on my shoulders and one was sitting on my chest um, I was so miserable. I was an investment banker and I was so miserable because I mean, I'm a cr creative, boundless white space creative. And I was like doing acquisitions and yeah. modeling oh, wow. and yeah. it was the antithesis of what I should have done, but what society wanted me to do. So um, I couldn't breathe. I was like a flower without sunlight and water. And finally we both said, that's it. We, we can't do this any longer and we are stepping off the treadmill and we are going to do something that makes us want to get out of bed each day. Sorry, that was long-winded. No, that's that okay. Now, 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 why, now, how does it come to toys and, you know, why low-tech toys? 
Yeah, well, that was the easiest part of it because all our parents are involved in education. I mean, his father is an elementary school principal. His mother's a guidance counselor. My mother's a teacher and my father's in educational publishing. And we loved children, like from, you know, both of us always loved children. And we lamented the fact many times that all that open-ended play and childhood and the gift of unleashing your imagination was starting to disappear, even in the late 80s you know, it was all about watching TV Mm -hmm. and it was starting to be about Atari and video games and Cabbage Patch and a lot of licensed character toys with batteries and sounds. And we lamented that those classic toys that had been so wonderful for us in unleashing our imagination really didn't exist anymore. And that was the genesis of this idea that we could take boring, lackluster, dull play patterns and reinvigorate them with pizzazz and refresh them to make them more engaging for children. How did you do it? How did you test it out? Was the testing ground your own family? Doug always jokes because I told you he's an amateur comedian himself. He says we conceived a toy company out of wedlock (laughs) um, because we were just dating when we started our company. So we didn't even have a family. We were just uh, 22 and 24. So no, we just had a hunch. And I think I've always been a firm believer in gut intuition, you know, being the most driving force in innovation and creativity. And we just had a brainstorm that uh, puzzles which had been somewhat of a hallmark of our childhood, really hadn't changed since like the 1800s (laughs) and were so dull, drab and boring that like no one would ever buy a puzzle again. And we kind of had this brainstorm, like why wouldn't we reinvigorate a category that taught so many incredible skills? And we started reinventing them, the first one being a textured one and then just expanding from there. And building for the next 10 years, you know, basically our company was strictly puzzles for our first 10 years. And by the end of that 10 years, we had like maybe three, 400 different puzzles and a pretty large company. And I've heard you say this many times, but that you create from your heart. I do. When did you become conscious that you create from your heart? And what was it that led you to, to realize that? My pattern, thank goodness, my only positive pattern that I would say developed in childhood was this retreating to my imagination. And that boundless white space was the most euphoric place I could ever imagine. In fact, I, I used the word like psychedelics and on drugs to to, the, to express it because I couldn't imagine any you know, substance giving me a greater high than being in my imagination. It was so pure and it had such an ability to bring me joy that I protected it as incredibly sacred. So whenever I created, I went there and I went into this wonderful place where there was nothing but my own ability to make meaning and make order from the disorder. And I think, I knew how I had to protect that because that was my only safe space in the world. So every time I create to this moment, I cannot let anything or anyone um, impinge on that, like that beauty. Uh, And I think, you know, if you ask what led to our success, it's because 
you know, every single toy, I go back to that exact same place. I never think about the toy before it. I never think about the end result. I think about just creating from the depths of my soul and imagination and bringing to life, you know, a brainstorm based on seeing a problem in the way something's currently done and wanting to rectify it to make that experience all the more beautiful for children. So this is true success. This is what true success is, what you're describing right now. That, That process is, you know, should be the definition of success. And Jennifer, I want to ask you about mm. imagination, which we mm. talk about on the All show. The yeah. Using imagination for mental health. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a little sure. bit and how you're talking about what Melissa's doing, you know, in her creative process and and applying it to uh, thoughts and feelings and how definitely. someone takes care of the, themselves? Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, I, I just want to speak to what you were talking about, Melissa. That's so that's so amazing. And what's so interesting about the human brain is that it polarizes, right? You you could be in the mm-hmm. darkest of darkest places and then in this mm-hmm. magical, incredible world and one could not exist without the other. It's just finding that balance, right? And so usually very bright people with with really creative, brilliant minds, it's sort of if you think about a rocket on a launch pad, all the chaos before it actually takes off, that's depression right? Mm-hmm. Depre- it's all of this energy that just has nowhere to go. All of that creativity and that amazing, oh, I don't even know how to put words to it, this, this incredible place that your brain could go. The depression is the shadow of that. So the greater the potential mm-hmm. of the brain, the, the worse the shadow, right? Mm-hmm. And the shadow is awful. I mean, it, it really is. And there's a lot of people living their lives right now exactly the way that you described, either trying to control, like anxiety and depression work together. They're nasty little cousins, right? Mm -hmm. So anxiety, at least you want to move. You want to do something. You want to try to take control. Depression is like, forget it. I'm out. I'm lying on the floor. I can't fall down any farther. I'm just going to lie here. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of go through these cycles. So you can, you can see so many people going through this and it's, it's probably more intense than it's ever been. But that, that's why a, a mind that's so creative and can use that imagination can just turn on itself and be so nasty, right, to, to yourself. Here's what's so interesting. This is why I brought in anxiety as, a, as one of the little cousins here. When I work with kids, especially really, really anxious kids and, and adults and, and young people, if you, it, right away, if they catch on, oh, you're doing strategies to get rid of the anxiety, if the anxiety wakes up and go, I know what you're doing. You're trying to do CBT on me. You're trying to control me. You're trying to get rid of me and you Mm -hmm. can't get rid of me because you need me, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of the work that I do with with people is imagination first, all in your head, imagining things going in a very different way, living it and breathing it and making it as real as you can with sound and color and taste if you can find it, making it so real, just like Melissa talked about her world being so real and just, just play around in the imaginary world first which is your world looking exactly how you'd like it to. And then what happens is the limbic system, which is the part of the brain that takes over and does the you know, security system in the brain, that's what puts you into fight, flight, freeze, or appease. What it does is it, it takes over your brain, but it can't tell the difference between something you're imagining, something you're remembering, or something that's happening. It's all the same to that part of your brain. So I absolutely um, work with people to imagine what they want first. In fact, everything we have, everything we do, everything we see, everything we use, everything we sit on started out in somebody's imagination first. Mm -hmm. Um, And Melissa, you're so right. I mean, I just think that's uh, working with kids, it's worse now than ever. 
they're just sitting there watching, the, you know, playing their video games and they've lost imagination. They, they barely play in imaginary ways anymore. And it's one of the things I really encourage parents to do is to take digital breaks and get the kids off their devices and, you know, playing in their backyard or in their basement. And yes. it, it makes such a difference. It's so important. And, it, you know, Melissa and Doug, we say, if you don't start playing as a child and keep it alive your entire mm -hmm. life through your adulthood, you will fall victim to despair just as easily as you would as a child. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question. Yep. Yeah. A lot of the emotions that come up or, you know, that you, that you have, I feel like a lot of the emotions that I have are childlike emotions. Well, ch mm -hmm. children work out everything through play. Like you don't, I don't work right. with a six-year-old and like, tell me about your day. Well, let me tell you, it started with, it doesn't go, it's, it's all through play. We do it through game playing. We do it through toys. We do it through imaginary play and they will project their struggles, their issues, their fears into the play. And then we resolve it through the play. So you can, you can rehearse and imagine, this is something I, I didn't realize even in therapy after years of therapy, you can rehearse anything. Mm -hmm. You can rehearse a fear that you're having about going to a party. You can rehearse the situation. Mm -hmm. yep. You can talk it out. You can talk to your own feelings. You can talk to your own thoughts. You can have a conversation. You can draw a picture. You can do all these things. Creative play about your mental health is like the biggest, to me, that's the biggest area that people need in this world today is to know that their thoughts and feelings are something that they can make choices about and mm -hmm. play with. Mm -hmm. That's what I like, yes. love about your company, uh, Melissa, so much. Take us into uh, how Lifelines started to happen and how the book started to happen. I know it's an extension of, you know, your verses and how you, the things that you loved as, doing as a kid that you did naturally. Take us into that whole community and how, what you're doing uh, nowadays. Yeah. So this was never, Lifelines was never intended on happening. You know, we were going through Melissa and Doug doing just fine. Um, everything seemed okay. You know, I had adopted the, the facade that was my life and I was certainly enjoying life in a traditional sense and realizing every dream I could have ever imagined. But I think as I grew older, that cry of my soul to be seen authentically started getting louder and louder. And the more I tried to deny kind of who I was and what I felt, the more I, I saw the cracks starting to show in that facade. And I started to see the absurdity even of what I was doing, like you said, mm -hmm. that I was creating these beautiful, bright, shiny toys for children. All the while, they were forged out of this tremendous <laughs> anguish that I had been living with. And I wanted people to finally like see me for who I was. I felt like I was kind of living this lie. So a couple dots started connecting that made me see for the very first time that I actually had an affliction that had a name. And usually labels aren't good. I've always despised labels and been completely against convention. But this was the first time that hearing that I actually suffered from something called existential mm -hmm. depression was maybe the best thing I could have ever heard. Because, you know, for, for someone who felt utterly and completely alone and that no one had ever experienced anything like this, to know that actually that wasn't the case at all. And not only did it have a name, but it afflicted highly prolifically creative people 
made me suddenly see that qualities that I had tried to kill my entire life and I viewed as only a curse were actually, I call it now a blurse, <laughs> were actually a blessing yeah. and a curse in one. And that was utterly intoxicating. Yeah. So you start to become aware of this. And then what happens? I mean, as you start to change, does this affect your business? Does this affect your family? Does this affect impact how you relate to your kids, how you relate to Doug? How does this, how does this shift your life? I mean, it shifts it in the greatest way you could ever imagine. And not all, not all shiny, of course. But, you know, the great news about waiting so long to do it and having it literally be basically one day you look up at the heavens and you say, that's it. I can't do it any longer. I'm so exhausted. I can't fight, resist, repress, deny any longer. I need help. And there's no going back. It was like, it didn't even matter anymore. Like the, and, and a lot of people say to me, you know, like, but you had everything. You have this shiny image. You have it all. It was like, I didn't even care, you know, because I knew that I had to do this and that if I could do this, so could a whole bunch of other people who I knew were also living a lie. So I think in one sense, I was doing it to heal myself, but I knew that in healing myself and finally accepting myself in totality, I would be able to help others do the exact same thing. And when you wake up in the morning now, are there things that you do specifically to address whatever's going on inside of you that you didn't do before? Or is it just, how does it, how does it all work for you? It's been absolutely incredible and has enabled me to have my meaning in a way I never thought possible. So accepting myself in totality meant I took this pretty arduous journey inward that took honestly years. Um, I enlisted the help of a trained professional because before that perfectionism meant I couldn't admit that I needed help. I couldn't admit that I was weak and broken. Um, and finally I didn't care about that any longer. So this journey inward that enabled me to finally accept that I'm a full spectrum of emotion. I am a paradox of light and dark. And it, it allowed me to accept all these qualities that make me uh, a white space creative, as I call it. You know, that also meant that I had to accept that life was going to be an undulating ocean of highs and lows mm -hmm. and dark and light and depressed and elated, and that I would need an ongoing practice to help me to remain safe and sane in that, um, in that undulating ocean. So I think I've had to develop for the first time in my life, because I'm not denying and repressing it now, uh, a practice, which I call my backpack of lifelines mm -hmm. that I have to strap on every single day and utilize multiple times each day deliberately so that I can holistically keep myself afloat. Well, Jennifer, Jennifer, that's a great image, the backpack oh, right? yeah. and the yep. trail of life. Mm -hmm. now, Jennifer always says, too, if you have time to worry and you have time to control and you have time to beat yourself up, then you have time to take a minute and actually take a breath. Mm. So what I'm imagining is that you have all this free time now that you're not punishing yourself. Yep. So Lifelines, the book, is a combination of different things, right? It's a combination of photography and journaling and prose and verses. Mm -hmm. That must have just poured out of you as it has been, you know, your whole life. 
It did. I, that was the the biggest product I had never given birth to, and it um, it took me fifty years to get it out. Uh, and it was so what's the word? So exhilarating when it finally came out. And you know what? That wasn't meant to be anything other than my bid to be accepted exactly who I was, because I felt that if I could do that, then others would have the courage to do that you know, likewise. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't meant to be like a self-help manual. It wasn't meant to be follow this and you'll be okay. It was really finally saying that those verses that were the truest expressions of my soul, yet I had never shown the world. And when I finally sort of took them out of their dark closet, there were over 3000 verses that I had never um, shared that had accumulated over, you know, 50 years. Um, and I felt like while, while they were still hiding in the dark, I was too. So that, um, the volumes of the book were determined by the verses themselves. And I, I felt like they deserved, they were my lifelines and they were what had saved me because I repeated them day and night to keep myself alive. And I thought maybe if they saved me, they could save others as well. So the book was just one piece of it designed to just put it out there in its rawness and say, hey, if Melissa can do it, you know, at the point where she is in life, like theoretically we all can. And then Lifelines, the ecosystem was based on three, um, sort of three core principles from my life. One is uh, you are not alone. Because, you know, having grown up feeling so isolated and alien and like I was on another planet and didn't belong here, I wanted others to not have to go through that for as many decades as I did and have a place to go to where they're accepted for exactly who they are. The second sort of core premise is that we all have the capacity within to channel our darkness into light and make meaning. Uh, You know, I believed for at least 25 years that there was no meaning to life and that I couldn't make meaning in a meaningless existence. Um, But I now see that actually that was just my brain telling me that. And we all have capacity to sow our beautiful sparks of self-expression in our soul and make meaning. Uh, And we all have them. They might be shrouded under layers of despair or trauma or tragedy or, you know, apathy. But we all have the ability to remove those layers and, and kindle them. And then the last is I spent decades engaged in the feudal race away from myself and everything I felt Uh, searching externally for validation. And it wasn't until I realized that it wasn't going to come from outside myself. And I stopped, took a breath and took that journey inward to accept everything I was feeling and everything I was that I found fulfillment and peace. And that journey that was the centerpiece of my life experience is now the the free journey that we offer, the journey to inner space um, at the center of our Lifelines ecosystem. Wow. Lifelines is a community. It's a it's an online community. It's it a worldwide community. It's something that you're you're building bridges for people to walk across and and connect with each other. How do people access that? Yeah, I mean, it's entirely free and Doug and I are doing this together as our passion project. So um, no charge for anything. You just go on lifelines.com 
And we basically have all these really cool workshops where we talk about topics that nobody ever talks about. In fact, this week we're talking about, I don't deserve to be depressed. And you mentioned that, mm-hmm. that so many feel like they have, and, and we hear this all the time, like, but my life isn't really that bad. I don't yeah. deserve to be depressed. And they feel guilt. Mm-hmm. And we, we're just peer to peer. We don't, um, we don't have professionals, but that in itself is really beautiful because we are not scared to share anything. And we have a private Facebook group that is like over 800 people. Now it's really beautiful and people really support each other. Um, and we have the journey, which is free, which is this incredible inward hike you can take that we talk about. So there's a whole bunch of tools and resources that, um, anybody can utilize. Well, it's fantastic. It, it's fan- you're helping so many people and, uh, and stepping out in the world this way. Look what happens. Look what happens. Look, look at how many Aww. people. Well, you too. This is what we're all, we're all trying to do. And I would say one thing just in Jennifer, we, we've talked about this and we talk about it because it's such an important thing. And mm-hmm. that's notice what you're telling yourself. Yeah. I don't care what you're telling yourself. Yeah. Just notice what you are telling yourself. Yeah, that that kind of inner dialogue, the thoughts that we think are really powerful and they do, they shape your reality, right? Until you just mm-hmm. step back and you challenge them a little bit and you know, learning how to just shift your attention and just think about even neutral things when you're thinking such negative things helps the brain become integrated and Melissa, that's what you've done. You've integrated your brain. Because we yeah. need all, we need that polarity. We, life can't exist without it. You have such poetry in the way you speak. And obviously that that is the way your mind works very poetically. And so one of the things I love, because I love to do this too, and that's word mash. And one of my favorite word mashes that I've heard from you is exilify. Can you explain what that is? Oh my gosh. So yes, what Jennifer just said part of my work became realizing that I can be two things at the same time and two seemingly disparate emotions or feelings, you know, simultaneously occurring. Mm -hmm. And that the English language doesn't really give us the ability to talk about two disparate emotions Mm -hmm. at the same time. So I've created an entire dictionary of my own. I have like 50 words that I use all the time um, to really explain it. And one of my favorites is um, exilified or exilifying, which is the combination of being both exhilarated and terrified at the same time. That's awesome. <laughs> I love exilifying. <laughs> and, I, and I say, if I don't wake up each day exilified, because any thing that is unknown is going to create a bit of terror in me, but is also going to create a bunch of exhilaration because I'm, I'm kind of excited about it, but also terrified. So if we don't wake up each day exhilified, then we're not really living. I love that. With my kids that I work with, we call it nervous sighted. Oh, that's so funny. I call it nervited. <laughs> nervited. That's awesome. But it's so good. Uh, yeah, so I have nervited. But it's so real, like that we feel all these things at once. And so children grow up so confused and with so many mixed messages and so yes. much programming that tells you this is bad and this is good. And children are getting brighter, I don't know, sassier. <laughs> and they're, yeah. you know, and this, I, I would also say like during the pandemic, one of, one of the things I'm really, our whole team is struggling with is how, is how much young people are suffering right now more than ever. Yeah. Like it's yes. just epic. And all those kids that suffer from existential depression, yes. really common within, within the gifted population. Yes. So 
I've been talking to a lot of children Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the words I also think is so helpful is to use this word blurs. I love that. (laughs) When you think about the qualities that make you who you are and you realize that they have both a blessing to them and Mm -hmm. a curse, you, you see them entirely differently because, you know, I have this ability to create freely, like literally, you know, I can write a verse in my head any moment. And, and I always thought, ah, whatever, everybody can do that. That's like not nothing, not a big deal. But when you see that the ability to do that comes at a price, yeah. which is moments of really profound despair each and every day, like you see that, yes, it's a blessing, but it's also a curse. A curse yep. And I'm okay. And I'm okay with it being a blur. Yes. And it can't be anything without it can't be anything without those two things. Exactly. Yeah. That that is such a an important thing. And 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 I see it right now. I see that I see that you've got the dictionary and you've got the pictures that go with it. So it's almost mm-hmm. like these little these drawings, these characters. There is an exilifier, there is a blur. There is I, I see it I see it in front yeah. of my head. And I think it's going to be so helpful. I think that dictionary is a really fun project. Yeah, we're going to make it a, a, a communal part of our um, ecosystem yeah. where others can add to. I love it for parents, too, to help educate their children on all of their feelings. That's just so wonderful. Wow. Yeah, the visual dictionary with the words is going to be a big thing. And then I see, of yeah. course, I see... I see. Uh, I see everything in action figures. Uh, I see a whole and, thing and coming an, coming up. Another word for kids that I use is denealing, which is denying what you're feeling. Oh, I like that and I think too. If we can, if we can start to have kids be able to say, "I think I'm denealing right now," uh-huh. you know, and know that they're just terrified to share what they're feeling, you know, that alone. Um, will be such progress because, you know, part of this is having the courage to say how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. But my issue was even more so that the few times I did say what I was feeling, people didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And they were so disgusted and horrified. And I don't know what the word is, just like all of it terrified that I got this message. Like you can't show the world what you're feeling because nobody wants to hear it. Yeah. Well, and people don't know what to do with it. That's the thing. They're, they're afraid, right? So the, the whole, our work at Connected Parenting is teaching parents how to listen, how to use compassion and language as medicine, right? So you have the Yay. tools and the equipment to, to hear your child's pain, to feel everything that they're feeling and not be terrified of it. So otherwise you grow up the way you did where I can't tell anyone because nobody, exactly. nobody can handle it. Nobody can hear it. And you said it so beautifully when you said at the beginning, you said you just have to be there with them. And that was exactly what I wanted more than anything. I didn't need someone to solve it. Yes. You don't have to fix. You just have to be, which is something that my Jewish grandparents used to say. They're not here yet, but they'll be. And so just be, just be, just come and be. Really, I cannot thank you enough. Yes, thank it is you such so much, a Melissa. pleasure talking wow. to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for all you're doing. I love your book, Jennifer. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Go to lifelines.com. Find uh, Melissa's uh, courageous book, uh, Lifelines, which you can find at, at, your, at Amazon at every place that you want. 
I know that you'll continue to, to work with uh, Melissa and Doug Toys for generations as yes. this continues to go on. I want to tell you that you can listen to our podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can go anywhere. We're everywhere. And we're building the community. And you can find everything you need at MakeLight, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, MakeLightMedia.com. Thanks for listening. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasick for Jennifer Kolari, for Melissa Bernstein, for Lifelines. We will see you next time. 